tonight, we are uh, in our series of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and in the morning we're doing the series on the seven churches. Um, before we get started, we're going to do the study, and then we're going to have baptism afterwards. Now, as soon as the study is done, if you have children, while the people are going to be changing, go get your children, and they can come and sit with you. And um, you supervise them, but don't leave them in there because they got to close down the uh, the children's ministry. So if you have children there, go pick them up, come on back down. Meanwhile, they change and everything, and then we'll move on into it. All right. Great. Why don't you turn to Romans chapter 12, please? Romans um, 12, 7 and 8 will be our text. And the message is entitled, The Gifts of Ministry, Teaching, Exhortation, and Giving. Having studied the first nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, it's easy to understand why there are so many varied opinions and confusion in the church about these initial nine gifts. Christ is... In the Great Commission said this, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Mark sixteen fifteen through 18. Now I know the whole argument of a higher criticism and redacted criticism that this is now found in, the, in Mark. Bunk. There are manuscripts that show an exemption of it that it did exist. And it's there. And then nothing's given to us there that isn't found in other places. This text is not speaking about tempting God. This aspect of the Great Commission deals with with a greater focus on missions. As missionaries go out, God protects them. We see Paul in the book of Acts where a serpent bit him and he shook it off. And they were waiting to see they'd foam at the mouth and roll around and, and die. Because certainly the gods know that he's guilty and he'd escape the sea, but they're going to get him, right? I know a young lady, you've, you've seen, you ladies have heard Melissa here who's over in Africa. You know, five years ago when she first initially out, she says the one thing that the Muslims are always trying to do, the Christian missionaries over there, kill the pastors, poison them. He says they get mad because they only get sick sometimes. God protects his own. This is not a scripture for you to pick up a snake and have them bite you like back in the Ozark, stuff like that. That's not what it's talking about. You don't tempt God. All right? By this very command, Jesus implies that the gifts would be operative till his return. There's one section, let alone it's confirmed through others. The argument that the gifts were only for the first apostolic church and not only uh, it's not only unbiblical from the clear teaching of Scripture, but also from the fact that if the first century church needed the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what would make us think that the generation of the church that would be in the last days or the latter times, could do without them. When deception would increase, doctrine would be opposed, seducing spirits would be the source of that teaching, doctrines of devils and false teachers and false prophets. 
Well, who would say that the church is efficient without the gifts then? And yet people contrive the scriptures. One of the greatest persons that does that is Dr. John MacArthur. His conference on strange fire. I don't even listen to him with the gifts because it's almost demonic. He attributes everything to demons. Very, very dangerous. I know he's a good teacher, but let's leave it there. Um, Does anyone really believe that the church could operate effectively without the gifts during these last times and last days? Of course not. The church couldn't function in the church age without the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We can't just intellectualize them. These are all supernatural gifts as we have seen up to this point that will not change. God endows us with them. He operates them except for the ones speaking in tongues. You are the only, that's the only one you have control as we've seen. So we want to look at the next four gifts here found in Romans 12, uh, 7 through 8. Um, let me read here our text. He says, verse 7 says, Our ministry, let us use it in our ministry. He would teach us in teaching. He would exhort on exhortation. He would give with liberality. That's the next four. Now, the gift of ministry, the gift of teaching, the gift of exhortation, the gift of giving. We begin with the gift of ministry here in verse 7. The word for gifts is charisma, the same root for the word grace, charis. The very word declares the nature of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It is by the sovereign favor of God, without any merit, that God imparts to a person a gift of divine grace, leaving no room for boasting. That God has given me the gift of teaching and pastor-teacher, I have no way to boast about. Whatever gifts he gives, you have no way to boast about. We are to seek the best of the gifts as we've seen. We're to covet the best of the gifts, those that edify everybody else. But God sovereignly disperses them. Romans 12, um, 3-4 says, For I say, uh, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, for as we have many members in the body, but all the members do not have the same function. Just like the illustration of the body, a hand, feet, arms, they're all different, they're all necessary, they're all joined together, and they're all there taking their messages from the head. This hand doesn't do its own thing. Then has never has never said, please let me be a foot, please let me be a foot. Never. And this hand has never served itself. It's always served the rest of my body. The word ministry, diakonia, comes from the word diakonos, which is used for deacons. The word in its most basic meaning refers to one who runs an errand, executing the commands of others. Paraphrase, a waiter boy. I am a glorified waiter boy. That's what I'm to be. I'm not a reverend. The word reverend is only affiliated to God in the scriptures. No man is a reverend. I am a pastor. I am a servant. And those in the church are to be the greatest servants of all. I'm here to serve you. You're not here to serve me. You're not here to give me birthday cards, gifts, or anything else. 
You're here to learn to depend on the Lord and to you serve others that come to the church and not be here just for yourself. There are two other words that are used in Scripture. One is uh, liturgos, indicating one discharging a public office at his own expense, and it's used of Paul in Romans fifteen sixteen. And this is what public servants were at that time. They would flip the bill for a function. If you look to the history of our nation, this is what our senators and Congress did. Often, they would flip the bill for society, and they would go back to work. They would go to Washington, do it on their own expense, and they would flip the bill for many things, and then they go back to work under the laws that they passed. Not like the plutocrats today, that are just wealthy people that rule us by spending our money. There's a big difference. Now, we get our word liturgy from it. The other word is hooperides, an underroar, one that acts under another person's direction, used of the steward in Christ in 1 Corinthians 4.1. A steward must be found faithful, an underroarsman. They used to have trireme ships, three levels of oars, of slaves. The top one didn't work as hard, the middle worked a little harder. The, the bottom one, they died first. They worked the hardest. Their oars were always in the water, underroarsmen. The mistake and error that individuals make is either their perception of ministry or their deviation from what is true ministry. And there are many of these. Many uh, want to be in ministry, but all uh, want to um, be seen in ministry. Um, they don't want to do all that ministry requires. Everybody wants to be in ministry, but when they get in ministry, they don't want to do everything. Ministry looks so easy, and, 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 oh, man, what do they do? They, they golf all week and just speak on Sunday? Great. Now, some do that, but I don't golf. Um, but it looks different from, from the pew or from other people's perspective. Many desire a ministry, but not all are willing to wait on the Lord to be raised up in ministry. They're pushing themselves all the time. They're telling you how great they are and how much training they've had and everything else. And um, um, education, nothing wrong with it. Like I've told you often, you've got education, fine, I'm not against it. But once you get it, get over it. Um, education doesn't make you a minister or make you anointed or make you qualify for ministry. If God calls you and anoints you, you don't need education. doesn't mean you can't have education, but he anoints you and calls you. That's the main thing. And then that he sends you. You can go get a Ph.D. and men may give you a degree and they may send you out, but that doesn't mean God's in it. Time is a test of all things. Many have a wrong concept about the meaning of ministry, thinking it is a place um, to be served instead of a place to serve. Uh, if you remember, Paul prayed that a service, the word there, diakonia, be accepted in order the, the, to meet a need for the people, Romans fifteen thirty one. So Jesus says, I, I'm one who serves among you. I came to wash feet and to give my life a ransom for many. Uh, he's the ultimate example. There's only one type of leadership in the Bible. Servant leadership. Not a hierarchy. Paul clearly makes known that there are different ministries, but the same Lord in 1 Corinthians 12.5, the word that he uses there, diakonia, same word. Paul tells Timothy to fulfill his ministry, diakonia. Indicating to make full with the idea of lacking nothing of its potential or capacity in Second Timothy 4.5. God calls you, simple principle, he enables you. 
If he doesn't call you, he doesn't enable you because he hasn't called you. But what he calls you, he enables you. He calls you to be a Christian. You respond to the gospel. He enables you to be a Christian. He gives you a divine nature. He gives you his Holy Spirit. He gives you his mind. He gives you his word. Now, the command regarding ministry is interesting. It says, let us use it in our ministry. Um, we are to do ministry through the particular gift of ministry, be it uh, whether you teach children or teens or young adults or music, whatever your ministry may be that you're called to, uh, you're to, to use it. Uh, natural abilities and talents um, may, be a, may accompany your calling and your anointing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your natural abilities and talents are those gifts. Are we clear on that? There's a difference between natural talents and abilities that you learn and you become refined in and supernatural gifts. The gift of ministry is a supernatural gift that God endows you with to do ministry. And that can mean on various levels, depending on what it is, whether it be with teens, marriage, whatever it may be. Um, we are to make time for ministry. Sometimes people want to minister at their own convenience. Um, that's not what Jesus taught. We're to give our attention as to the manner in which we are ministering, for we will give an account to God. Why and how we do it? Do we do it out of love for God and out of love for the people and obedience to what God is directing? Or do we do it begrudgingly and complaining and all that? As I said, everybody can't wait to be in ministry. Then they're in ministry and then uh, things start happening. We're to prepare ourselves for ministry too. So it doesn't mean we just, you know, do nothing. We're to develop our gifts of ministry that our ministering may develop. If you've been with us for any length of time, I'm sure that you have seen from the time that the church began in a Bible study in 1980 that the manner and the, man and the way I teach has changed. It has grown in maturity and is a little more refined now, okay? If I was teaching the same way I did in 1980, I, I doubt if some of you would be here, okay? And so even in supernatural gifts that God endows you with, you grow, you develop, and you let God press you towards the mark. It's very important. We're to bring glory to God in our ministry. That means that we don't touch anything that he does. And we always remind people that what God does through us is God's grace and God's ability and God's glory. No one touches his glory. And it's easy to do that when you are in a small little Bible study of four or five or ten or fifteen. Or you have a church that's not very big. But then when God starts doing a work, it's so easy. You start believing the compliments and all the accolades that people want to lay on you and all that. And you got to stay away from it because it's all God. Paul says, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why are you boasting? And there's such arrogance at times from ministers and from those in ministry. And they forget that they're to be the servants of all. It's just basic. It's what the Lord taught. Again, we're never to forget that God is the enabler for ministry of both the gift and the empowerment. God puts people in ministry by first calling them then enabling them to fulfill their ministry that they are called to, as Romans 12, 3-5 says. Paul tells Timothy, 
having been a murderer and a blasphemer. He says this in 1 Timothy 1.12. And I thank God Jesus our Lord who has enabled me for that he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. I, I mean, do you realize what Paul used to be? <laughs> Paul did not say he was worthy of being taught at the feet of Gamaliel. Though in the Hebrew culture, in the Greek, but rather Christ enabled him. He didn't say, yeah, I sat under a Gamaliel. He was a great teacher and that's why I am. No, he says, all that I counted as a, as a pile of manure. I have some to boast about. It'll be in Christ who called me, who enabled me. Paul says, God is sufficient for the things of ministry and the sufferings that accompany ministry. Listen to 2 Corinthians 2.16. To the one... We are an aroma of death leading to death and to the other an aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Christ. So as you preach the gospel to some people, they say, why don't he shut up? I hate that guy. And other people, the Holy Spirit convicts them and they realize their lostness. And they think you're the greatest gift coming to tell, to share the gospel. So it's kind of a sweet and sour when you're in ministry, you know what I mean? But who is sufficient for these things? Christ. None of us. God told Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. As you know, before Pastor Chuck died, I probably mentioned Pastor Chuck no more than in this hand, five times of that, in the 30-some years. Once Pastor Chuck died, now I quote him often, because dead men can't change their mind. I always quote dead people. They can't change their mind. And because I didn't want to build on any man's foundation, I never mentioned my brother, especially my brother. <laughs> If God's in it, he's in it. And if he's not, he's not. No big deal. God takes care of it. Now, there are some cautions in ministry. Ministering to others is never to be absent from our lives, but rather present throughout our lives. Therefore, while we are waiting on our ministry, we do not just sit, but we make ourselves available in the ministries that are in effect wherever you're fellowshipping, in order to meet the needs of the body, being steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. It's always easier to guide and direct a moving object than one that's standing still. And by the way, if you're sitting still and sitting, you're an easier target for Satan too. So be busy. Now, some of you are old enough to remember when we used to drive cars that didn't have power steering. And you had to parallel park, and it was a tight spot. Man, you, during that man, by the time you got done, you had some guns on you. As you walked out, you were all sweaty and everything, okay? So, it's easier if that car is moving for to turn those wheels, right? And the same thing with us in ministry. So, you make yourself available. You start here, Lord, I don't know what you have or my gifts. Show them to me. I'm going to step out, direct, and guide me. And God will do that. He's faithful. Ministering has nothing to do with being boss or in the place of power. But in being the servant of all, 
as the deacons of the early church in Acts 6, 3 through 4. They served. My grandchildren one day realized, Grandpa, are you the boss at church? I said, no, Jesus is the boss. But, but the natural thing is we want power. We want to be in a position where people can see you and to praise you. But that is not what ministry is about. And um, often that's the, what the platform or the pulpit or, or ministry has been used for. And uh, so often people become so corrupt in it. And um, uh, interesting that all the kings fell in their old age. You ever see that in the Old Testament? Not when they were young. Somehow they, they feel entitled after a while and power. Well, you know, I, I, it's because it's who? who? Who did it? Amazing. The secret of greatness, remember in Matthew 10 or in Mark 10, 35 through 45, Jesus said that it was uh, being the servant of all. Took a little child. James and John asked for the right and the left hand. He said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to partake of the cup and the baptism? Oh, yeah, Lord. And the ten were mad at the two because the two beat the ten to it. They were all. They all wanted to be served, to reign. They're going to Jerusalem. They thought the kingdom was going to be set up. Amazing. Ministering is unto the Lord, not with eye service. And God, it is God who sees the heart and will reward every person according to their motives. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 and Colossians 3, 22. So God is never going to reward you or myself for how much we do. God's going to reward us for why we did it and how we did it. Did we do it love for God and love for the people? Then we have some reward. But if we did it to be seen, we've got our reward. God alone knows why I stand behind this pulpit. God knows my heart. And he will reward me accordingly. If it's simply for, to boast and to present myself as whatever to, for people to applaud me, then I've got my reward. But if it's really because I love the Lord and I love you, then I may get some reward. You understand? So he looks at the heart. Ministering. Time and the call of God for a person can be two different things. Even as Moses waited on his ministry 80 years to serve. (laughs) So the call and the timing are two different things. And sometimes people want to be used right now. Lord, come on, I've been saved a week. Lighten up, Mabel. (laughs) 80 years, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, leading sheep to find out that he's nothing. God says, now, at 80, I can use you. Interesting. Jeremiah was 17 years old, um, and he served um, until the captivity of Israel, as you know. uh, Probably a total, about 52 years total, and he probably died in Egypt. Samuel was a child when he was led by his mother in Shiloh. And um, he was weaned then and served till his death. When the people asked for a king, he felt a little grieved, remember, thinking the people had rejected him instead of God. And God spoke to Samuel and told him, why are you upset, Samuel? They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So we have some weird presuppositions at times in ministry, even though we are called and anointed, we lose perspective sometimes. 
And we have to come back to the basics and say, Lord, forgive me. It's all of you and you're the one in control and you're the one to get the glory. And when people reject your word, they don't reject me. They reject you because we're all human. So that's why it's important that we gather together, we study, we pray, we, we see God work in ministry to remind ourselves of all this. Paul was trained three years in Arabia and the desert there by the Lord. And when he fled for his life to Jerusalem to meet the apostles, um, then he got too hot to handle. So they sent him on R&R to Tarsus. And he was there for uh, several years, um, about seven or so. And then until he was sought by Barnabas, and then they both went to Antioch, where they taught the church there in doctrine for the first year, until the Holy Spirit says, separate me, uh, Saul and Barnabas, for the work of the ministry which I have called them. God called them, enabled them, and sent them out on the mission field in Acts 13 too. It was God who did it. The church didn't send them out. I get letters all the time, you know, like, can you give me some money because I'm going to this and God's called me here. Well, if God called you to go, why are you calling me? If God said he sent you, why are you asking me for money? I'm not God. You ask God, he may give it to you. You ask me, I'm not going to give you anything. I didn't call you. I'm not sending you. And we've done weird things in ministry. And we lay this trip on people. We make it an organization and we make funds and we make this and we send people and they flop out and they become corrupt because God isn't the one. They're not depending on God. They're depending on their P.O. box. They're not dependent on God on their knees. They're not dependent on God for the direction of where they want to go. But, but the board, the mission board, the pastor who sends them. I've never sent anybody anywhere. I've asked them to leave, but I've never sent them anywhere. Jesus waited 30 years in preparation for three and a half years of ministry. And he was God. Are you going to complain about the gifts of ministry that God gives you? That he's delaying too long? Stay busy. Stay involved. Be moving. God will be faithful to fulfill his call if he has one for you. Are you going to compare yourselves to others and complain and exalt yourself? That's always a big thing too. And there's a competition in ministry all the time. Who has the biggest church? Who has the greatest lights? Who has the latest technology? Who's this and that? Who do you know? And who do you have speaking? Can I hang out with you guys? This and that. I don't really care to hang out with anybody. You realize I don't have a lot of pastors here come and speak, right? Because I protect this pulpit. Some of the pastors that you think are great, I wouldn't have them here. I know them. And others wouldn't give me the time of day. But I don't really care because it doesn't really matter. We are self-sufficient. God has raised up tons of teachers in the women's ministry. Incredible teachers. Tons of teachers in the men's ministry. God has blessed this ministry. This is not a ministry of personalities, of some, you know... Great testimony and all that. People always ask me because of my brother. What did God save you from? I said, sin. Now what can I do for you? I'm, I'm not the important one. It's not about me. It's about God and the gospel. You understand? And so the gift of ministry is to be used in our ministry. You need to seek the Lord for that. Not your pastor. You need to go to God in prayer. 
You need to wait. You need to, you know, fast a little bit and do a word study and get in the word and wait upon him. And meanwhile, be involved. Second gift, the gift of teaching. Verse 7 there. Um, the charisma is the gift of teaching here. Um, the word teaching or teaches here is the verb that means to hold discourse um, with others in order to instruct them. Uh, to deliver didactic discourses to be a teacher or discharge the office of a teacher. The gift must be received by faith as all of the other. These are supernatural gifts, not natural gifts, because you're an English teacher doesn't mean you can teach the Bible. God has not called you and anointed you to teach a Bible study, then you may be able to tear apart English, but that doesn't mean anything, okay? The gift of teaching must be exercised um, in faith, and the gift of teaching must be developed and matured also. It also will develop in that. The gift of teaching has great responsibility, they, for they shall receive the stricter judgment, James 3.1 says. Because I'm telling you to do something, and if I'm telling you something I'm not doing, well to me, right? Pharisees, hypocrites, they lay heavy burdens on you, but they don't lift it up with one little finger. The enabler of the gift of teaching, once again, is God through the Holy Spirit. Jesus has given teachers for the church to know and understand the word of God. In the history of the church, we've had some incredible teachers. We have some great teachers today. And they're good teachers, and they're simple, and they're straightforward, and they can, you can be understood, and, 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 and they do a good job, and thank God for them. Jesus gave pastor teachers, which is a different gift. It's a hyphenated gift. The gift of teaching is one. The gift of pastor teacher is another. You cannot be a pastor without pastor teacher. Okay? But you can be a teacher without being a pastor. They're two different gifts. Okay? And when we get there, we'll, we'll see that. Uh, Ephesians 4.11. For the perfecting of the same, for the work of ministry, and not to be carried away with every wind of doctrine, and to mature the body of Christ. Now, there's commands also regarding the gift of teaching. And teaching the gifts must be exercised for it to be beneficial to others. Okay? So, God will anoint you. God will set the platform. God will bring the people. God will open the doors. If you're always pushing doors to be a teacher, God's not in it. The word teaching is the noun form and means to give instruction. It has the same root as the word Teaches. The word describes the act of instructions, others, uh, instructing others in the word of God. And the word is also used for the word doctrine in 1 Timothy 4.1 and 16, 2 Timothy 3.16, 4.2, and in Titus 1.9 and 2.1. So doctrine, teachers, same root word. The word is used also to identify the position of a person in the church as Paul, a teacher of the Gentiles, 1 Timothy 2, 7, 11, and 12. Uh, interesting, Paul, this great Jewish rabbi, if you will, and, and he's made the Gentile, the apostle of the Gentiles. <laughs> God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? The gift is supernatural like all the other gifts of the Holy Spirit, not natural abilities. And I am making myself very purposefully uh, pointing this out at different times because the gifts of the Holy Spirit are are misunderstood as natural talents and abilities. They are not. 
Many believe because they have the knowledge that God has given them the gift of teaching. Not so. Knowledge has to do with the facts and information. Teaching has to do with the ability to communicate facts and information in order to be understood. And that the people don't fall asleep. I am the first one to know if my gift is effective and my gift is anointed of God. Because I see your mugs when I'm teaching the whole hour. Okay, I see some of you texts. I see all the other things like that. Okay. Once in a while, I'll see somebody sleeping because they're tired. Sometimes I have a spiritual bomber, boom, like that. But, for the most part, the hour flies. Okay? Now, if I would see your face going, oh, man, this and that, the majority of you... And if I started with ten people and after uh, three days I ended with one, I wouldn't have the gift of teaching, trust me, okay? So God will confirm your gift by the people he brings, by, by how people respond, their growth and everything else. But the danger is then to start saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good here, you got to be careful. You got to come back to the basics, it's God all the way. The person who possesses such a gift by God's sovereignty will see the people respond, grow and mature spiritually. And what a joy it is to see some of your lives where you came from and what all that God has done for you. I just walked in with a couple this morning. I just said, you know, I just watching. I was coming behind you. This guy's parked and you're walking up with your wife and kids. And what a joy all these years to see how far God has brought you and how he's blessed you and how you've been so obedient to the Lord. What a joy. Just as parents who see your children grow up and you've taught them and they grow up to be productive citizens and they walk with the Lord. What a joy. What else could you ask for? There's no more reward needed. You know what I mean? It's just a joy. Paul and Barnabas spent an entire year in Antioch teaching many people in Acts 11.26. Paul in the pastoral epistle saturates them with exhortation commanding Timothy to teach the word of God. If people are not understanding and growing... As you teach and more leave than remain, once again, you don't have the gift of teaching, okay? It's real simple. The teacher's responsibility is, is great. A teacher has a responsibility to charge those who are teaching false doctrine, uh, to oppose them, I'm sorry, uh, who teach false doctrine. And that's not always an easy thing to do, First Timothy 1.3. That means that this pulpit, uh, I not only, I have to warn you of false teachers, Okay, because they're all around there. There's radio, there's television, there's other things. And and so I encourage you to study the word of God so you can judge whether what is being taught in this church or any other church, whether it's biblical in its context or not, so that you can be wise in what you take in. There's so much heresy being taught within the church today that it's incredible. And many pastors don't want to name names. Now, I don't name names just to think I'm bad or anything. I name names because these men are dangerous. And the more subtle they are and the more they appear as good, nice people, the more dangerous they are by what they teach. Because they deceive. They ensnare. The teachers to know that the Spirit explicitly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1 and certainly as we see today, we see much of that. 
Many people teaching things that are so off the wall. And I've named Rick Warren and other people, you know, Rob Bell and other people. And now even some of the Calvary's are into some of this stuff. It's ridiculous. You have to stay on track with the compass of the Bible. If not, you will go by the wayside. By the way, the warning there in Timothy 4.1 was to Christians. If Christians can't be deceived, why warn them? You as a parent warn your children, right? Why? Because there was no possibility? Let's give God a break. <laughs> a teacher is to instruct the brethren in these and many other things as evidence of being a good minister of Jesus Christ. Nourishing up the word of faith and good doctrine, which... He has carefully followed, he says in 1 Timothy 4, 6. A teacher is to give attention to reading, exhortation, and doctrine, and not neglect the gift that was given to him in 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 14. A teacher is to withdraw from those opposing the word of God, godliness, and the love of money in 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. And that's why I say I protect this pulpit, because I don't want to have somebody come here that is teaching off the wall, and then I'm dragged with them, and the character and the reputation of Calvary Pasadena goes by the wayside. It takes years to build a reputation that's worthwhile. It takes one stupid move to destroy it, right? And you just never know. A teacher is to hold fast to sound words which he has been taught in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus and study to show himself approved to God. A workman does not need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth in 2 Timothy 1.13 and 2.15. Rightly dividing the word of truth is a word for a, 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 a cutting straight across a path of forest like the point man of an army. The forerunner blazes the trail. So we're to get the word of God, be able to discern it, divide it with objective truth, do good exposition to rightly divide what it meant for them and what it means to us now so that we can apply it to our lives. That isn't just reading it. Take some time to study. You got to put the time into it. Now there's some cautions. Teachers are always in danger, um, in a dangerous position. Again, we've implied it, but directly will state it. It's pride becoming dogmatic in areas that are not clear in Scripture. Uh, and there's room for opinion. And, uh, but, you know, if you've been under this teaching here in Pasadena, under me, I, I, am, I am pretty strong. I, you know, I'm pretty dogmatic, and, I'm, and I have to be careful. But where I see things clearly, I don't deviate. So you have to be careful um, where, where people would be dogmatic, where there's no reason for that. Then you have to say, well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Okay? And if there's areas that, that, that we just don't know, we, we don't know. It could be this, it could be that. But um, there's also the danger of, of saying things that God doesn't say. And I've pointed off, and I'll give you a good illustration of that, is suicide. You know, many pastors say, all Christians, they commit suicide, they're okay. Where do you get that? Give me a scripture. There's only five people in scripture that commit suicide. I wouldn't want to be in company with any of them. Where do you get the worst? Are you God? The warnings God gives me is, don't go there. And you say it's okay? You're dealing with people's eternity. Those things, you have to be real careful. Of exaltation by the people and worship, and this happens all the time. 
Some pastors have such success that pretty soon they think they can do anything, say anything, and people just go along with it. In a little bit of time, they step out and they deviate and they build their own kingdom. Then they got all their workarounds for them, right? And the people are there to serve them and catch their vision. And of course, then they crank them for paying the bill, right? Any ministry, and we're going to get to giving. Any ministry begs you, get up and walk out. A ministry takes an offering, fine. You can give if you want. If you don't, don't give. But if they beg you, they crank you, get up and walk out. God's not broke. If God's in the ministry, he'll take care of it. Just real simple. Teachers must understand that God will hold them accountable for everything they teach. As to its accuracy, if they're being Pharisees and not living it out. John 3, 1. Matthew 5, 6 and 7. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns, the teaching should never be uh, strictly mechanical, uh, merely academic, but full of passion and practical application, being able to communicate in the world that they live in. Teaching has not been, um, a teaching that hasn't been birthed through prayer and uh, meditation and labor and good study is not worth hearing. You know, sometimes I listen to people on, on, the, on the radio and that, and very seldom do I, I, I listen to Christian radio anymore, because they just kind of talk. They just kind of give their opinion. They, well, you know, this happened, that happened. You know, give me the word. I don't care what you think. I don't want to hear about your wife. I don't want to hear about your kids. I want to hear about Jesus. And, and it's almost Christian entertainment today. It's ridiculous. I was driving home the other day and listening to this pastor and his wife giving answers. Uh, Answer, man, you mean? They're, they're arguing. They're just differing an opinion right on the, on the air. My Lord, what an embarrassment. What are your wife doing on the radio anyway, correcting you? What an embarrassment. Girly man. Teachers should always act exact of themselves, the utmost diligence. And their gift regarding personal growth and development maturity as a teacher. Because we will be held at a higher standard. And we must be aware of that. So the gift of teaching is for those who teach. Next comes the gift of exhortation. It's pretty simple. Here in Romans 12, 8, the, uh, the charisma is the gift uh, to exhort. And the word exhort simply is a verb that means to call near, to invite, or to invoke alongside. We might um, describe it as the act of one to come alongside a person in order to provide a needed encouragement for them to move on in life in the spirit, just to encourage them. Um, the same root is used uh, to identify the Holy Spirit at his coming. In order to the believer not be an orphan, Jesus said that in John 14, 16, 18, and 26, and then in 1526, so he's the one that comes alongside to encourage us. Jesus is going to the Father, and the disciples are freaking out. He says, stop being afraid. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many abiding places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am there you may be also. And if I go out, I come back to receive you to myself. So there's the encouragement. He encourages them. I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. I will come back to receive you to myself. You must make the distinction between Jesus coming back for his church to receive us to himself from coming back with his church to set up the kingdom. Jesus is the first that mentions and teaches the rapture of the church in John 14, 1 through 3. Very, very clear. Jesus promised to send them the parakaleo, 
to teach, guide, and comfort them, the, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would just be just like him, the same nature but of a different number and kind. The Father is the first person, the Son is the second person, and the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Yet they're all God, all powerful, all knowing, all present, except Jesus limited him for a set time to complete the atonement. The gift, once again, is supernatural, not natural ability. The gift is not the ability to get a person to do something through motivational pep talks. Today, there's a lot of motivational speaking in churches passed off as spiritual teaching. It is not. The gift is not training that a person gets through a weekend seminar. The gift is not a composite of degrees in counseling. Dr. James Donson is probably the one most responsible for undermining the authority of the pulpit in psychology since the 70s. Declaring that pastors are not qualified to do certain counseling. Really? Do, Do we believe that the Christians of today have gone through worse things than the first century church? Wasn't Jesus sufficient for them? What an insult. You lean to man's understanding. By the way, psychology is all humanism. There's not any field of Christian psychology. It's like grape nut. What is it? Grape or nut? The world's given up on psychology. And the Christian's trying to breathe life into it. Ridiculous. The gift is given by God to a person in the body of the church in order to promote or to prompt individuals to act on their knowledge of Scripture in faith. Let me give you an illustration of the gift of exhortation. You have a little kid who's on the diving board, and he he, 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 he doesn't jump off. Here's here's exhortation. (laughs) You have that gift to make people move, to just do it. You understand? They come along and say, come on! Yeah, okay. Gift of exhortation. Some people have a great gift. Now there's some commands in exhortation. The word exhortation, paraclesis, in the noun form means comfort to console or to entreat. The gift of exhortation can be rejected due to being interpreted as self-righteous expression. And it could be, but it doesn't mean it is. So sometimes you're exhorting someone and they think you're judging them and you think they think you're better than them. That, that's a possibility. The gift of exhortation, though it is in love, at times may be very strong. It may come in rebuke, followed by um, a plea of repentance. So it's not just all positive. Sometimes it's very strong. So, you know, you need to get your act together, you know. God's done a lot through your life, and you have great responsibility. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You've had to confront your children like that. Often. The gift of exhortation is the ability to prompt individuals to do or to act on what they know is right, but are reluctant or hesitant. The gift of encouragement is much needed in the body of Jesus Christ, since every member is flawed with sin nature and imperfect. I need you. You need me. We're all 
part of the body of Jesus Christ. The gift can accompany the gift of teaching, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, prophecy, working in multi-combination as we've seen many times. So um, I have the gift of pastor-teacher and teaching, and with it comes the gift of exhortation at times and different things. They work in multi-combinations, but you can't tear them all apart at times, but God's not in operation. He does that kind of thing. As you know, I do three services in the morning. Sometimes I will deviate from the minister, from the message and say something that I don't say in this first or the second service because God knows who's there. And some people come up, you know, did my wife talk to No, my wife didn't talk. You know, God knows what he's doing, right? So we're not bound to our notes and everything is clue. I want to be open to what God is doing, right? It's very, very important. The gift, again, is supernatural. The responsibility regarding exhortation uh, is numerous in the scriptures. Um, let me give you some of them. First Thessalonians 4.1 Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those that are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. He's talking to Christians. 1 Timothy 2.1, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplication, prayers, and recessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. What a great exhortation. We live in this world where to pray for those in rule, those in government. That doesn't mean that we can't make criticism, acknowledge their error. We pray for them. But... We do it in obedience knowing that God's going to work in some way. We need that exhortation. 2 Timothy 4.2 Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Wow. That's a mouthful right there, that verse. There's a sermon. <laughs> Holding fast the faithful words as he has been taught. That he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict Titus 1.9, exhortation. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews 3.13. That's to Christians, not non-Christians. Deceitfulness of sin. Some men are great exhorters, and women, and others are just teachers. When the two are joined together, what an effective way God works. Preaching deals with exhortation regarding repentance through the gift of evangelism. And so God works it all together. Now there's some cautions. Exhortation is a beautiful operation of the Holy Spirit as much as teaching is. But it has its dangers also. At times people are told what not to do or exhorted what to do, but they're never taught how to do it. So the result is that the people are frustrated. You beat the sheep, but you don't feed them, tell them how to do it. Jesus always said, okay, here's the teaching. Let me show you how to do it. Okay, now you do it. Three simple steps. Teaches, he does it, he says, now you try it. Simple. That's what ministry is about. You get saved, we teach you, we show you what ministry is, and we encourage you, get into ministry. Serve. Simple. At other times, there is all teaching and no exhortation, resulting in complacency and snugness and 
um, laziness, resulting in being overweight spiritually. And so people do nothing, they just sit. They go from one seminar to another, one church to another, and, and all this stuff. They have all this knowledge, but they never do anything. Paul tells about the Jews who had a zealousness, but not according to knowledge in Romans 10.2. Paul tells the Hebrews that by the time he wrote to them, they should have been teachers, but instead they needed someone to teach them and be the basic principles of the oracles of God. And they needed milk and not solid food in Hebrews 5.12, so he rebukes them. Another possibility is that the gift can be operated in such a way that it lacks love. And compassion. It's a mere sword to cut people up. This is the reason why Paul told the Corinthians to pursue agape love. And desire spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 4.1. Everything we do has to be motivated by God's love. There may be some harsh words that we have to confront. But the motive has to be love behind there. You understand? You can't just use the word of God to cut people up. We must examine the scriptures to make sure that whatever we are exhorting, um, that is according to God's word. We must not confuse exhortation with rebuke and reproof. They may be included in that, but they're distinct. No person is exempt from needing exhortation. Not you, not I. And we should pray for the gift of exhortation to be given to accompany many of the other gifts in the church body. Paul says this. Till I come. Give attendance to reading. To exhortation. And to doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.13. Peter exhorts about godly living. In 1 Peter 4.10-11. through 11, 2 Peter 1.10-13. And many other places. Exhortation. So the gift of exhortation. Is for those who exhort. We all don't have the gift of exhortation. Just like the different members of the body. Now, the gift of giving is the last. Um, charisma, the gift again of giving. It is um, a verb to mean to give over or to uh, share or impart to someone. Um, compassion is... Uh, um, part of this, but again, this is the gift of giving. This is not something that you move by yourself. It's distinct from our privilege of giving to the Lord what is uh, what we give in our tithes or our gifts. The gift is identified as one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So this is where God endows you with the gift of giving. Um, uh, the gift is given by God to an individual for His glory. And for the edification of the saints. The gift is not one that is sought out by many people. I've never had people ask me to pray for them for the gift of giving. Uh, last time I taught this uh, series, I think it was about five, six years ago, one person came up and said, I want you to pray for the gift of giving. So I prayed for them. Now, whether they really wanted it in God or not, I don't know. Or whether they were being to it, I don't know. But it's a gift that people really don't um, um, ask pastors to pray for or seek the Lord for. Um, and, and um, again, we're talking about uh, 39 years of ministry, okay? So that's a lot of years. The gift of giving often is thought as uh, being given only to those who have a lot of money. But um, that's not always the case. Um, there are people who have very little. And 
it seems that they're always giving to others. They have this gift of giving. They just they just givers. The act of tithing is a good example. Uh, the people that um, that make the least amount of money are are usually the most consistent in giving, as well as giving the most in proportion to what they make. And the people that make the most of the time, they're the least consistent, and they're the ones that give the least in proportion to what they make. You know what I'm talking about? Okay? You make $2,000 a month, and you give, let's say, a tithe, which is 10%, then it, it does cost you, does it not? You make 10000 a month, 20000 a month, 40000 a month, and you give a 10%, you probably, you know, probably blow your nose with that bill. No big deal. You know what I mean? And so... It's very important for us to understand that this is the gift of giving. It's apart from our privilege of every one of us to give to God what belongs to Him. This is the gift, supernatural, of giving that God gives to a person. Our society having become more materialistic and hostile toward Christian um, find themselves in difficult situations. If you remember about six, seven years ago when the economic world kind of went upside down, those ministries who are always begging on radio and over the pulpit, man, did they go put it on hyper speed? They just began to beg. But the ministries that don't beg, they didn't have to change in any way. They just depend on the Lord. And that's the beauty of it. If God has done the ministry, then you never change your philosophy, you never change your practices. And the simple principle is this. If you ask, people will give. If you beg, people will give. Because you give the sad stories. You give this, that. You give whatever it is. It's just the way we are. At other times, we just are selfish and make all kinds of excuses. Many different things. Christians are to be the most giving persons, as the scriptures tell us. We're to be very benevolent. The minute we were born again, we became financially ahead. I've told you this often, many, many times. I mean, I would go out on a weekend. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd buy booze, you know. I'd buy new clothes, you know. I'd take a girl out, you know. I'd pay for gas. And sometimes, you know, I end up crashing my car and it cost me money. I'd get a ticket. I'd I, I, I get in a fight, tear up my clothes, stuff like that or whatever. And, you know, go get my hands sewed up or whatever. It cost me a lot of money to have fun. And then I got saved, and the first weekend I was saved, I saved a lot of money. Now you multiply that four times a month, just on the weekend. That's a heck of a lot of money. So the minute I'm born again, I am 20 to 30, maybe 40% financially ahead right away. And here I am, squeezing the penny so hard that Lincoln's eyeballs pop out. Come on. But see, getting between you and God... Often people call me and they say, you know, Pastor, we're this and that. I say, you know what? Here's what the scriptures say. Read 2 Corinthians 8 9. This is part some of the things of the Old Testament. That's between you and God. I don't get in that. I don't look at your tithing. I don't see how much you give. It's none of my business. I teach what God allows and opens and brings people. And God takes care of everything else. Okay? And because you are so benevolent and so loving and so obedient to God, this ministry is debt free. We owe nobody. Nobody's ever given us a penny, no other ministry, nothing. God paid this off. The gym, before we put the key in, it was paid off. Okay? God takes care of us. 
We don't pressure anybody. If God wants to close it up, it's His ministry. You understand? It's real simple. Don't make God to be a beggar. He owns a cattle on every hill. Let me give you some commands. With liberality, notice that. The giving is to be done with liberality, which means singleness of eye without dissimulation or self-seeking, simplicity and sincerity, mental dis- mental honesty. It is free from ulterior and false motives. It is obedience to the Lord according to the gift given to the individual. Let alone even when you give in tithing. You do it to the Lord, not to people. You don't try to impress people. The general principle of giving to God and others must certainly be applicable to the gift of giving. The things of God that he honors is the willing heart, evident by um, by as far back as the Exodus where he calls people to give for the tabernacle. That person with a willing heart, Exodus 25.2 and many other passages. A willing heart. If, if your heart's not in it, don't pollute the offering. You do it because you love the Lord, because you're obedient to the Lord. It's the only reason you should do it. The people were restrained from giving any more money in Exodus 36, 5 through 6. I've never had to tell people, hey, stop giving. We, we've got too much. I don't think any ministry's ever done that. Moses is the only one that I've read. The principle of sowing and reaping uh, bountifully is given in 1 Corinthians 9, 6. Now, this is a promise, uh, but you have to be careful how people use it, okay? Many people will use it in ministry. Say, if you give God one, he'll give you ten. And they're using carnal means to motivate people to give. Well, let me say, God is not a debtor, and, and you'll never go wrong by, by whatever you give to God. But to teach that God's going to give you ten because you give one, and so you plant your seed faith as Copeland, Price, and, Heaven, and, 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 and Hagen and the boys, that's heresy. It's crazy. There is one who scatters yet increases more. There is one who withholds more than is right, but it lends to poverty. Proverbs 11.24. Are you a Taiwan? Well, be a tightwad with guys and men and women, but not with God. God's going to take care of you. Who gave you your health? Who gave you your job? Who gave you your brains? Who saved you? But it should never be under pressure. Love should be the motive. The giving is to be done with purpose of heart, not begrudgingly or grudgingly, nor necessity or compulsion, for God loves a what? A cheerful, hilarious giver, Second. Corinthians 9, 6-7. The Macedonians were used by Paul as an example to rebuke the Corinthians. Out of deep poverty, their deep poverty, they abounded with joy. It gave out of their liberality in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, and 9 and 12. Paul said, no, no, you don't have, no, no, don't do that, Paul. They gave us our Messiah, they gave us the scriptures, we can at least give them a little bit of our material stuff. Out of their deep poverty. Wow. By the way, that's the only offering that you find in the, in the New Testament. We hear so much offering about sending to missions. Do you realize that's the only offering ever taken? And it was from missions back to the home base? Maybe we should switch it around. Missions should send us checks. I dare you find me a passage where the church sends out offerings. Never find it. People come to me. I say, listen, I didn't send you. Go to God. Simple. Because then you, they're dependent on you, and then you feel guilty when you have to cut them off. God take care of his ministry. Let me give you some cautions. 
The gift of giving is not restricted to money. It includes time, clothing, lodging, food, attention. The gift of giving must be guarded against the desire to parade before man. As the Pharisees bringing attention to them, Jesus spoke about that in Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Don't sound the trumpet. Don't be telling people all the things you're doing. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing and vice versa. The gift can come to be thought of as one's own goodness and kindness, robbing God of the gift and glory. You have to be careful. Wherefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. All to his glory, ladies and gentlemen. I can't encourage you enough. Your children will pick that up from you when you give God all the glory. The gift can be neglected in one's life. 1 Timothy 4.14 says, Neglect not the gift that is in you which was given to you by prophecy and the laying on of hands by the elders. So whatever gift God has given to you, you can neglect that gift. You can misuse it or just let it lie dormant. The gift is to be stirred up by way of reminder, which exhortation is this. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 2 Timothy 1.6 Wow. The gift of giving is to be done, listen, with liberality. And so, these are four more gifts of the Holy Spirit that makes a total of 13 as we move through this series. The gift of ministry is to be used in our ministry. The gift of teaching is for those who teach. And the gift... here. The gift of uh, exhortation is to be done. Encouraging those to move on in whatever area they're at. And here the last one, the gift of giving with liberality. So important. If we do our part, whatever God calls us, anoints us and gifts us, then he puts all the work together. He does it on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, during the week. He puts it all together. And his church just continues to go on. The church is affected and everything else because we are doing what God tells us to do individually. Not what the pastor tells you to do. What God directs you to do through the gifts that he endows you with for his glory, for his purposes. That's what it's all about. Father, thank you for your grace and your love. We pray you just continue to deal with our hearts and cause us to be open to the work of your spirit, Lord. We do thank you, Lord. We praise you. And Lord, I pray for every person here that you speak to their hearts. And Lord, there's someone here who doesn't know you, that you would speak to them. Understanding, Lord, that they are separated from you because of sin. And that you would just open up their eyes, your grace, that they would call on your name. To repent from their sins, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe you're over the internet, and God has brought you here to be saved, to turn from your sins. It's called repentance. If you see yourself as a sinner, and God's wrath upon you, that's the grace of God. Now he gives you the ability to make a choice, 
to remain where you're at or to call upon him in repentance so he can forgive you and save you. The choice is yours, not his. If you desire to be saved, to repent of your sins, this is your prayer to the Lord. Right where you sit, you can repent. You don't need to walk up front right where you sit. And he will save you right now. So this is your prayer if you want to be saved. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.